how easy it is to get sidetracked. Maybe you might sit down to do an internet search. But then three other things pop up. And before you know it, you're far away from where you started. The devil deals in distraction. As Paul is writing to Timothy, he brings up that same great truth in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. When we think of the great truths of what we believe, what the Word of God teaches, when we come to Jesus rising from the dead, oh, then how many distractions come into view. To help us with our observation of the resurrection, ABC always seems to show the Ten Commandments. Now Christ fulfilled the law for us, so we, we can look to that. But Moses did not die on a cross to save us from our sins. There are certain papers and periodicals that publish editorials questioning even if there was an historical Jesus. I saw one of those articles this past week, and there was a certain little bit of anger that rolled up. And then I thought, you can't even respond to something that blatantly ignorant. And then there's always the world's encroachment. Rabbits and eggs. As if the rabbit saw the chickens laying the eggs and said, I got to get in on this somehow. Paul instructs Timothy that he's going to deal with things that distract. So in verse 1 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, he says, you, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He exhorts him to be strong. Why? For you must endure hardships. And what are, what's going to be the cause of the hardship? On well, verse 2, he says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, in the doing of what he has been called to do, there will be a whole lineup of those who will work against him. <clears throat> you must endure hardship in the grace of Christ and continue to commit 
to faithful men that will be able to commit to others these truths. And that, my friends, is why we are here. Truth has been preserved and proclaimed. Verse 4, he tells him, though, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That is, if you're a soldier, you should not be taken away from what you're supposed to be doing. Now, wonder about pronouns and various other things. And also, anyone, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crop. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. The affairs of this life, he says, will be those things that will encroach and offer distraction. There are other hardships that may come and many temptations to be a man of the world instead of a child of God. And there will be, then he says, be wary. Wary of arguments and debates that detract from the proper focus. Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. So as we come to the verse we're looking at today, <clears throat> verse 8, we see two areas that are often attacked and sidetracked by profane <clears throat> and idle babblings. Verse 8 of chapter 2, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. So he begins this by saying, remember, Remember, and this links to two main foundations of truth. Remember one, Jesus Christ, the seed of David. This is a theme that is quite consistent through the New Testament. Romans 1 and verse 3 to 4, Paul then writes of Christ, born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Matthew, when he begins his gospel in chapter 1 and verse 1, says the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In the first message, first sermon preached after Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 30, it was revealed to David of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, to sit on his throne. That is, God would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. There are many other places we can turn as well. And what is the point that's being made here? What is Paul getting across? What is it that Timothy has to make clear as he teaches these things? Well, it's to make clear that Jesus was truly human. 
the seed of David, speaks of his humanity. If you study your family tree, it is a tree of humanity. Only humans can be on it. As much as you love your cat, or your dog, or your horse, they can't be on your genealogy. And by the way, monkeys can't either. That's why it's a genealogy and not a pedigree. And these verses show how important it was that the fact that Jesus, though fully divine, at the same time was fully human. Two natures, one man. And this is one of the major areas that was first attacked very quickly after Christ's ascension. One of the first major heretics, it almost seems strange to even put a qualifier on there because a heretic is a heretic. Heretics are those who teach false doctrine. And even though they've been attempted to be corrected, they still continue to teach falsehood. The first well-known heretic was Marcion. He set out to destroy the idea that Christ was human. He also set out to destroy the idea that God ever did anything in judgment. So he took out, in his version of the New Testament, he took out all the references to God's wrath. All the Old Testament references were removed. But Jesus truly came in the flesh, the seed of a woman, who was of the line of David. He was really a man with real human nature and soul. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 for just a second, the idea again is, is made clear over and over to us again, but particularly here as we see in Hebrews 2 and verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he that is Christ had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. He, in his humanity, experienced everything that we experience in our humanity. But it was, it was a full and true humanity. The next thing is, he was, he was raised from the dead. Raised from what state? The dead. That sounds rather simplistic. But the fact is, what proves his humanity more than his death? The dead. As God, he cannot die. But as man, he did. And by the way, before we get too far away from this, uh, 
the reference to Jesus being of the seed of David also was to bolster Timothy. To give him encouragement. Because even though Timothy would experience hardship, all he needed to do was look to Christ. Christ the king, Christ in the royal line, and yet the way that he was treated that we should not expect greater treatment. That's one of the things I think that gets lost in much of modern evangelicalism is the fact that Jesus said that the student is not above the master. And if they treated him a certain way, how is it in any way that we would expect that we would be treated better? But yet, when somebody gets insulted or something for being in Christ, they, they get all worked up. When Jesus tells you, expect it. Don't be surprised. If they did it to me, why do you think they wouldn't do it to you? Why do you think you have some kind of immunity to the struggles that Jesus faced? we shouldn't expect greater treatment than he did. You know, the funny thing is, we've, we've, we, humanity is so slow in learning, and often in Christianity, people are slow in learning as well because they are human. But trying to blend in with the culture never works. And we have one of the prime examples of this. When they took Jesus to the high priest for the first of the, quote, trials. Peter followed. And when they got to Caiaphas' house, where did Peter go? Did he come in to stand beside Jesus and claim he was a believer? No, Peter went to the outer part where the other people were standing and tried to blend in with the worldlings that were there. And even when he was asked, he tried to deny that he had been with Christ. And even then, when the girl says to him, well, certainly you are one of his, your speech gives you away. At that point, he curses and says, no. No, I'm not. And so he tries to blend in with those around the fire who have nothing to do with Christ. And what's the result? Well, Jesus had already told him that before the crows, that about three, three times, three times that Peter would have denied him. And so when the cock crowed, Peter went off and wept bitterly. If you are in Christ, you cannot. In your union to Christ, you can't unite with the world. It doesn't work. And it will only bring sadness and sorrow if you are truly in Christ and you try to be in the world. It doesn't work. It, it can't work. And we see these examples and sometimes we don't 
it doesn't sink in. Jesus really died. He didn't pass out. He was not resuscitated. He died. He died. There's no other way to see this truth and meaning of the word in the text. And the, the spear proved it. When that centurion shoved the spear into the side and the ribs, what came out? Water and blood. It had already started to separate. That's a sign of death. A sure sign of death. And talk about sidetrack. Somebody said, how big do you think that, that wound was in the, in the side of Christ? I said, four inches. Well, how do you know that? I said, because the hand is four inches, okay? And he said, reach my hand. Get your hand in there. But you see, all these silly things that people get sidetracked with. What difference does it make how big the wound was? The fact is that coming out of that wound was water and blood. The purpose of his death is not to be distracted and taken away from. He died to make reconciliation, atonement, satisfaction, all the things that make up the word propitiation. He died to reconcile us to God. Not only us, but to reconcile God to us. Not only were we his enemies, but he was against us as well. As sinners, he couldn't accept us. And so there's a double reconciliation going on as well, if you want to. That we are reconciled to God, he is reconciled to us through Christ. There's atonement, a payment for the sins, our sins, that brings the satisfaction of justice. And he did it because of the sins of his people. To procure peace for them. To bring full remission of sin. What do we mean by remission of sin? Sometimes I think we, we use words that maybe some generations don't pick up on. So we could say full remittance of sin. If you owe a bill and you pay the bill, it is said then that that has been remitted. You don't owe anything else because it's been paid in full. The bill has been remitted. So we can speak of remittance of sin. And then to provide redemption from sin. See, another thing we don't think about, but we were slaves to sin. We were in the house of slavery. It is funny how some people say, oh, well, you know, Christianity's been used to promote slavery, but the fact is, it was used wrongly. If anything is a free, if any, anything brings about freedom, to freedom, true freedom, it is the gospel. For all people, in all nations. Redemption from sin, from the curse of the law. He was raised from the dead. The good tense of this, ver this uh, verb here. Now remember Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. 
it's in the perfect tense, so it would actually be better risen from the dead. And the marine, not to get into the nitpicky stuff, but the fact is, risen from the dead, in the perfect tense means still risen from the dead. Instead of something that happened in the past, yes, it happened in the past, but it still is ongoing. He's still risen. And that's an important point for us to think about because of the fact that his resurrection, his rising from the dead is not like Lazarus's rising from the dead. Because what happened to Lazarus? He was risen from the dead, but at some point in the future, he would die. And he would be put in a tomb, again, this time, not to rise until Christ returns. But here, Christ is risen. The first to rise, never to die again. It is a point in the first sermon that was preached again after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Ever again, never would that ever happen again. Paul writes of Christ who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Why is that important? What does it mean for us? It means this. That in the resurrection we have the Father saying that the Son's offering of himself for the sins of his people been accepted. Everything's paid in full. So he's raised for our justification, our right standing before God. And friends, Christ did not rise from the dead for himself. It wasn't like he was looking there to say, look what I can do. Behold my power we must realize that Christ never did anything for himself. You realize even when Jesus ate food, he was not eating it for himself, but to remain alive to do the work that he had come to do for us. Everything he did, he did for his people. What value would any of this have been if he did it for himself? What sense would it make? Why would he have to die for sins when he had none? He's the perfect son of God. 
But he who knew no sin became sin for us. He hath made him who, who knew no sin to be sin for us. And the result is and the purpose that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's not one thing that Jesus did for himself. We sometimes speak of people who are <clears throat> seemingly totally selfless. Yet no one is totally selfless. Some might point, well, you know, remember Mother Teresa? Yeah. She seemed to be pretty selfless. <clears throat> Yeah, in some ways you can look and say that there was some of that, but also, did you know that she wore a habit? Why? Well, because it was part of her order to wear one. She didn't wear it as a fashion statement. But in order for her to do what she, she wanted to do, she had to do that and wear that. And in order, and so that's not a totally selfless thing that she did by wearing the habit and going to the places she went to, not trying to besmirch her reputation or anything like that. But she wasn't, and she couldn't be because she was a fallen sinner. She could not be 100% selfless. Nobody who is a sinner can be. No matter how hard they work. In fact, sometimes that hard work points to the fact that they're being selfish because they're doing it for themselves to feel good about themselves. And again, I'm not casting aspersions on her. But Christ did all he did for others. He is the only truly selfless one. The only truly selfless one that walked the face of the earth. And because he rose from the dead, it means that we have a pledge of our own resurrection. Those who believe Christ has risen from the dead affirm that the same thing will happen to them. It will take place for them. In our union to Christ, which, again, we cannot stress that enough because Scripture doesn't stress it. Scripture stresses it so much. Our union to Christ makes it so that if he rose from the dead, guess what? We will too. There's no way around it. Don't be distracted. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. Let's stand together for prayer.